there are few stories in the world more recognizable and archetypal than the epic of David and Goliath. From children's books to cliches to scholarly debate and deep theological reflection, the David and Goliath story is packed with meaning and intrigue and metaphorical significance. It's such an interesting passage that I've decided to preach on it for two weeks in a row. So last week, we covered the whole story, which is quite a long chapter, all of 1 Samuel 17. And so to like freshen it up, we had a dramatic reading, which if you heard that, it was pretty amazing. Uh, thank you, Jeremy Goliath over there. Um, it's, on, it's online if you didn't catch it because it was pretty fun. Uh, but in that message last week, I kind of had three basic goals I wanted to cover. First, I wanted to give us a fresh sense of the story to see how the David and Goliath narrative arc fits into the larger biblical story. So often we focus just on this little shepherd boy who against all odds defeats the massive Goliath, but there's a ton of clues in the story that point to significant themes uh, tying it to the rest of the Bible. So For example, the story helps us to see God's sovereign plan at work in the demise of Saul's kingship and the rise of David's kingship. We've come to see Saul as this faithless, inadequate king, uh, which is the result of his poor choices and his poor form of character. But on the flip side, we see David as this obedient son who then proves to be faithful in his belief that Yahweh will follow through on his promises to Israel if she will just trust and obey him. There's this archetypal use of the number 40, for example. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David steps up to challenge him. Now, where else can you think of the number 40 being significant in the Bible? Put your thinking caps on, right? You've got 40 days. Noah, thank you, 40 days of flooding in the Noah story, which is a story of new creation. You've got 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which is a story of the formation of God's people to rescue the world. You've got 40 days of fasting uh, with Elijah in the wilderness, 40 days of grace from when Jonah preaches to the Ninevites to when they would be judged if they didn't repent, 40 days of Jesus being tempted in the desert and defeating the evil one, 40 days of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And there's like tons more in the scriptures, but the point is, is that this is just more, so much more than just a parable about don't underestimate small people, or this is a significant movement of God, and it's because of God being at work in the story of David and Goliath that the superior size and strength and experience of Goliath won't stand. Okay, that's the first goal from last week. The second goal was to dispel the common misconceptions of the David and Goliath story. The primary misinterpretation is the idea that somehow this story teaches that you can do anything if you just have generic faith in you. Um, You can do anything if you just trust God, whatever it is. Um, That you can turn any enemy into your life or any obstacle into your own personal Goliath and then you can claim the victory as if God were on retainer for you like a genie to just overcome your obstacles. But David and Goliath isn't supposed to be an underdog story and it is not a recipe for self-help and it's certainly not an invitation to rain down curses on your enemies or personal obstacles. It's a story about God being faithful to his promises. And the fact that David is small and young and that Goliath is seemingly invincible is that the point of that is that it must be God who delivers him. 
Okay, which brings me to my third goal from last week as we recap what we, what we talked about. And that is seeing through the eyes of faith. Saul and Israel saw through the eyes of the flesh. They saw this massive dude, nine feet tall with a big spear and a sword and a shield. And they saw an invincible warrior. Whereas David looks past Goliath and sees Yahweh as his champion. And in the same way, last week, we're invited to see Jesus as our champion over the great enemy of sin and death. In our flesh, sin and death, evil and chaos, they're indestructible. But Jesus has overcome the great enemy when we put our trust in him. It's a great story. It's a great story. We covered all that last week. But my goal this evening is to focus in now on the actual people in the story. Yes, there's massive, important, overarching themes, huge theological motifs that we saw last week, but let's not forget that the story involves actual, real people who lived and breathed, people with names and lives and fears and flesh, people like you and me, whom God chooses to work in and through. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read a section of this. Um, we're going to read First Samuel 31, or 17, 31 through 54. When the words of David spoke, uh, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. Well, he's been a, a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock. And I went out after him and attacked him, and I rescued it from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he's taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with the garments, his own garments, and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go in these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And a sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines to this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened, when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. And then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in the tent. Lord, what do we even do with this kind of passage? Ancient, strange, violent. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you prevent us from either being too familiar with the passage or dismissing it altogether. We thank you that your word is living and active, that you have a word for us. So work in and through me. May my lips say the things that you want said, and may our minds and hearts receive the things that you want received. Amen. You may be seated. This is like obvious, but the Bible presents to us a God who is fundamentally relational. From the very first chapter, Genesis chapter one, we have a God who creates and relates to his creation and to human beings. And from that point on, every story and every song and every proverb and every prophecy has to do with the relationship between God and his people. It's no surprise then that when God interacts with the world, he chooses to do so in and through people. I opened the sermon with a recap from last week that focused on some big picture themes of the David and Goliath story, but as important as those themes are, we wouldn't even have a story if we didn't have the characters in the story. And not just any characters, but these particular characters, David and Goliath. Sometimes we read stories like these in scripture and assume that the outcome would have been the same no matter who you put in the leading roles, as if God had this master plan and then just puts random people, randos in there as cogs in some cosmic machine. Now, I think that the Bible does, uh, does teach that God has a plan and that he's actively guiding all of creation toward his ultimate goal. But aside from that very large plan, the scriptures don't give us solid evidence to suggest that God forces us into roles in the micro-narrative level. Okay? For example, in the end of Genesis 11, the world is falling apart. Like, people have conspired against God. 
they're stuck in these cycles of sin and rebellion, and so God decides to initiate a rescue plan, and you guessed it, it involves human beings, because that's how God does stuff. And he chooses this guy named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. He, he, he called this man to leave his homeland and to travel on a vast journey through foreign settlements to a land he had never been to before, and God didn't even give him the name. He says, I'm going to send you to a land I'll show you. Now, have you ever asked yourself, what if Abram just said, like, no, that doesn't sound like a good, good idea. Like, I'm just going to stay here in Ur of the Chaldeans, right? It, it's entirely possible that Abram could have just said no and, the, and that God could have just, like, had a different plan or chose somebody else. I mean, for all we know, this is conjecture, but, like, God could have asked other people who said no and maybe Abram was the first dude that just said, okay, I'll do it. Like, we just don't know. The story of Genesis may have been very different if you had the story of Lot and Lisa instead of Abram and Sarai. God's ultimate plan for redemption of all creation would not have been derailed, but the story would have been vastly different. Some other dude may not have sold his, or told the Egyptians that his wife was his sister and all those crazy sagas, right? And here we come to one of the main points that I want to drive home. God almost always works with who you actually are. He can change your character. He can enhance your abilities. But he doesn't tend to make you something that you're not already aiming at becoming. Let's take a closer look at David. In the typical popular way of telling the story, David is this teenager who's hopelessly outmatched by this massive warrior, Goliath. He's got no business being on the battlefield, and it is only through the miraculous intervention of God that David prevails. That's partially true, but let's take a closer look. It is true that if David were to go toe-to-toe with Goliath using swords and spears and armor, he would be no match for Goliath, but that's not actually what happens in the story. In fact, when Saul tries to equip David with his own heavy armor and sword and spear and all that stuff, David rejects it. He is not a trained swordsman, is he? He's a shepherd boy. But that doesn't mean he's not trained at all. Let's take a look at four qualities. So note takers, here's a tip to get your pencil out. Of four qualities that David has honed over the years to make him a young man that God can work in and through. Number one, David was obedient. When we first meet him in First uh, Samuel chapter 16, David is out tending his father's flock while the rest of his brothers are called into town to meet with Samuel, this great prophet who comes to visit. There are plenty of people who would ditch their duty of shepherding a small flock to come and see the spectacle of a famous prophet who comes to town, right? That'd be like being from a town of like 20 people and some rock star comes and you're just like, well, no, I'm gonna, my dad said to tend the sheep, I'm just going to stay out here. A lot of us would be tempted just to come and get a peek, right? See what's going on. In the David and Goliath story, David is only in the story because he's obedient to his father. His dad has given, given him the job of bringing food and supplies to his three oldest brothers because they're part of Saul's army. They are on the battle lines. And while the three brothers would receive glory and honor for their service, David is just a bit player behind the scenes. 
a lesser young man might sell the food and wine. Cheese is pretty expensive. He was bringing that for the, the brother's officer in charge. A lesser person may have sold that on the way and partied it, partied or gotten together with his friends and eaten all this uh, good food, right? But not David. He goes and he does just what his father says. It was his obedience to the small things on multiple occasions that made him the type of person who would obey when no one was looking. His character formed over every small decision to say yes to obedience uh, was what put him in a position to even encounter Goliath in the first place. Did you consider that? If David wasn't an obedient son, if he had done anything else than what his dad told him to do, he wouldn't have even made it into the story. Okay, he's obedient to the small things. Number two, David had a living faith. I don't know that he had a dogmatic faith. I don't know that he ever took systematic theology. Of course, that wasn't a thing, but he had a living faith. Take a look at the Psalms that David would write, and you, can, you can't help but get the sense that not only were they written by someone who was conversational with God, but they were also written by someone who was in touch with God's creation. You can almost picture David uh, composing his prayers and songs while he's shepherding his little flock on the hills, with springs of water bursting forth from rock. He, he's mixed his experiences as a shepherd, a naturalist, as an artist and a theologian, and he's reflected on his relationship with God. So when he faces a great threat to the promises of God, he didn't have to discover a faith that was lacking or non-existent. He drew upon the reserves of someone who is a regular worshiper and a regular prayer. Number three, David encountered threats that were beyond his physical ability many times in the past. At least twice while he was shepherding, he had to defend against lions and bears. He gives God the honor for helping him overcome those obstacles. So that when he faces Goliath, he draws upon this past track record of defeating dangerous foes by the faithfulness of God, and he's confident in the Lord being with him. And number four, David is confident in his training. Was he trained in traditional battle strategy or swordsmanship? No, not even close. But yet, that doesn't mean he wasn't ready to face Goliath. In the ancient world, there were four main types of fighters or divisions in an army. There were the heavy cavalry which used horses usually or sometimes other heavy beasts of burden that would pull chariots and just by like if there was one horse person with the javelin they're just like walking through this whole side of the church and squashing you like just mass right it's physics like cavalry are big and they go through people and that so that's one that's one type of uh, a fighter in the ancient world there were archers which need little introduction that arrows, right? And they, they, I mean, they could just mow down infantry from a distance, from a distance. But once the infantry got too close, archers were less effective because now you're shooting straight and people have shields, right? So you have to rain the arrows down. They're good from a certain distance. In close quarters fighting, there were infantry, foot soldiers armed with shields and spears and swords. Well-trained infantry could repel heavy cavalry if they had time to dig trenches and have pikes. They could angle the pikes and the horses. It's kind of sad. Anyway, you can use your imagination. Uh, They could get under the rain of arrows where their shields could protect them. But the fourth type of warrior in the ancient world were slingers. A trained slinger 
could sling a three-pound rock 100 miles per hour and hit a moving target up to 80 yards. In Scripture, we read in the book of Judges about the tribe of Benjamin, and it describes them as having many slingers who could hit a rabbit, uh, a moving rabbit, and not miss. The Greek historian Thutises uh, wrote the Peloponnesian War about how the Athenian uh, infantry was just mowed down by enemy slingers, hucking these rocks and like totally taking them out. Athens was defeated by slingers. Now, how does one get good at slinging when you're not in the army, when you're not trained, when no one is drilling you in slinging a rock? You do it a lot. And David did it a lot when no one was looking. And he wasn't doing it for accolades or because he had a commander that was telling him he had to do it. He was doing it because he was being a responsible shepherd. And it was part of his craft as a shepherd to know how to defend his sheep. And that's why he practiced when no one was looking. Now, Goliath probably had no clue that this young, non-military shepherd boy could be a threat. In fact, he thinks David is coming at him with just a stick, which many scholars think is a distraction. He doesn't use that stick with Goliath. He comes at him with a stick. Goliath makes fun of him. But then, right when Goliath starts to come at him, he throws the stick down and gets what he's good at, doesn't he? Something he's trained at over and over again. And I don't care how large you are or well-trained or how well-shielded, if you get hit in the head, even a bronze-helmeted head with a three-pound rock going 100 miles per hour, you will go down. By the way, fun fact, which way did he go down? On his face. Who else in, earlier in this book goes down on their face when they defy the armies of the living God? Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Remember when the Philistines stole the ark? And he kept falling down on his face, and finally there's like, get this ark out of here. We want nothing to do with your God. This is another example. Sorry, that's from last week's sermon when there's like big overarching things. Let's get, so let's get specific. All right, I just can't help it. Um, sticks and stones. Sticks and stones, that's what David's good at. Things that David had trained for. David had trained his character through obedience to small things. David had trained his heart through his relationship with God. David had trained his faith by remembering how God had delivered him in the past and applying it to his present dangerous situation. And David had trained himself for his vocation as a shepherd so that when he was called upon to do something that took integrity, faith, confidence, and skill, he was up to the challenge. God works in and through people, and he works in and through the people we are becoming. We're all in a trajectory, aren't we, of becoming something. We're all always training for something. Now God, like, let's just look at a couple other biblical examples, right? He did the same thing with Moses. Like Moses was formally educated by the Egyptians, humbled by his own mistakes, trained as a shepherd, sent by God, who put all these experience, you know, do you realize that Moses was for decades out, he was just shepherding his pagan father-in-law's flock. He didn't even have his own sheep. He must have thought, like, this is my life now. Like, I thought I was special. I was this Hebrew raised in the palace, and this is my life. For decades, it was his life. And then God pulls all those strings together. What better leader could there be than a wise, humble Hebrew who could speak fluent Egyptian 
and knew the ways of the palace to now interact with Pharaoh. I mean, isn't it amazing? Have you ever just had one of those spots where all of the streams in your life come together? Like, I was made for this job, or I was made for this moment, and God works in and through you in a special way. That's what we're talking about here. He takes the grit of Peter, the passionate, hot-headed fisherman, and made him a fisher of men. He takes the highly educated Paul and turned him into one of the greater leaders and thinkers of the early church. And see, the Lord takes what we have and sanctifies it and multiplies it and works with it for his glory. So the question to me and to you is, what are we training for? What are we training for? None of these biblical characters started off as super holy or super important, but they were faithful to the life in front of them. They honed their craft, whether it was shepherding or slinging rocks or catching fish or studying like Paul, who was a scholar before he was a Christian scholar. They honed their craft sometimes for decades and decades before God ever revealed how he was going to bring it all together for the betterment of his kingdom. See, we have a problem in our culture. You can just feel the temperature in our culture. The problem is that we're very short-sighted. So let's just shield ourselves a little bit and talk about other people, right? Like um, uh, public policy, right? Seems like so much public policy gets made that is short-sighted to get someone reelected rather than going all the way and doing the completely right thing. Okay, so there's politics. You can agree with that probably. Uh, We make economic decisions as a country, as a people, uh, that will give us short-term gains, but maybe have long-term consequences, both for the planet and for future generations. And on a personal level, most people keep our focus on the next best thing, on the grass is always greener on the other side, rather than paying attention to what God has me doing now. Come on, Yoda and Dagobah. Never your attention is what you are doing. Always your mind is what's out there, what your friends are up to. Right, Luke? Come on, don't be a Luke Skywalker. What if we looked at life through the four lenses through which we saw David just a moment ago? First, he was obedient in the small things. That's called integrity. How are you doing at the small decisions in your life? the non-glamorous ones, the ones that no one else is seeing. One famous disciple maker wrote, our character is the sum of our tiny decisions that most people never see. Our character is the sum of those tiny decisions that most people never see. If you're just waiting to do the right thing in the big moment, you may not be well equipped for it if you haven't done it over and over again in the small moments. It's the following through on our word. It's doing the small things when no one is looking, but you know you could get away with it by cutting a corner at work or whatever it is. So it's integrity. Second, David had a living relationship with God. I mean, one of the covenant questions that's traditional to our denomination is how goes your walk with the Lord? Well, you're here worshiping on a Sunday, a beautiful Sunday afternoon. The rain has passed. So that says a lot. Like, you're, 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 you're in the right spot. But when no one is looking, how are things going between you and Jesus? Have, have you talked to him lately? Have you been exposed to his word lately? Are you, are you in it? Right? 
Do you relate to him throughout the day? Is he part of your decision-making process? These are questions I've been asking myself, uh, so if they're a little touchy, it's I'm asking me the same things, and, and um, I'm woefully inadequate in a lot of these. Like, boom, I gotta, right? Have a living relationship with the Lord. Third, David reflected on God's track record of faithfulness. What would it look like for you and I to have a regular practice of reflection for Thanksgiving? And in years past, we've looked at different things like the prayer of examine, um, the Ignatian practice of, of just recollecting the day, whether it's in the morning or the evening. But some kind of practice of journaling or something where we, we take stock on a regular basis of the things we can be thankful for. Remembering God's faithfulness to you uh, that practice alone can do wonders for your perspective and your confidence going forward. I, I forget so quickly how many things God has seen me through, how many times he's provided, and it, it, it kind of sickens me how anxious I get every time something new happens. It's like, oh wait, he's, I've been through this before, and he's really good, and he always takes care. Right? And finally, what skills are you honing? Like, Sometimes we turn this into some super spiritual thing, and, and yeah, I've just talked about recollecting God's faithfulness, and I've talked about, you know, being in the Word and having a living relationship with God. That's, that's all part of it, but I'm just talking about, like, life skills. Like, I bet David never thought he was going to be this, by slinging stones, like, he's probably, like, what is he, there was no pop cans back then, like, what is he hitting? I don't know, like, branches and stuff like that, right? Anyone have a BB gun? You just, like, start shooting stuff, um, but, but, like, it, th- 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 these are not like holy practices that he was doing. Shepherding sheep isn't a holy practice. Like, what regular skills do you have for your vocation, your craft? If you find yourself newly retired, one of the, the things that happens as I talk to my r- newly retired friends is I have all this time, but everybody wants my time, and, and my time gets taken. I'm busier. I've heard this before multiple times. I'm busier in retirement than I was when I had a job, right? So sometimes we have to build structure in. What's a craft? What's a skill that you want to hone so that then you can say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help the 10th person move this week. I actually have a thing. And you don't even have to tell anyone what it is. It could be whatever it is. I don't know. I'll just make it up. But like, a skill that you're learning. And you're learning a new language or a musical instrument or um, uh, whatever, right? Students in school, ask Jesus for grace to do the hard work. We need skilled labor, good thinkers, competent practitioners and politicians, not just people who jumped through hoops to get a grade or a degree or a certificate, Right? We want our teachers to be people who actually know what they're talking about, right? I think we have great teachers in our congregation. Not just people who put a video on and like have somebody else do the work. We want people to walk with us, competent people. And that can be you and me. What are your sticks and stones that the Lord can work with to advance his kingdom? Can God give you superpowers and abilities totally foreign to your life to accomplish his will? Well, God, like God can do anything, but he usually doesn't. He almost never does it that way. Jesus usually works through the power of the Spirit to empower and amplify the skills and traits that you've been training on in the mundane things of life. That was a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, 
usually works through the power of his Holy Spirit to empower and amplify the skills and traits that you've been training on in the mundane things of your life. And you know what? I find that incredibly motivating. That means he can redeem my past. You know, when I experienced a call into ministry uh, and started my first pastoral job in 2002, I, I really struggled with like, how is God going to redeem seven years of diesel mechanic guy in the Coast Guard? Like, I clean bilges, I uh, work on hydraulics. Like, how does that matter to this? And then I started to realize, like, how all of it comes together, how being stuck on a steel ship with people about 18 different ethnicities is actually a good thing that helped me relate to people in ministry. How a lot of outstanding watch in the middle of the night um, makes you have some integrity. I mean, you could slack off, but I just didn't, and that means that it built a character thing in me that... um, I stand watch over you in my prayer life because I take that seriously. So there's all of these little things, scrubbing oil and doing all that stuff, all of these little things transfer. And I bet you if you look hard, all the little things in your life can matter too for the ways that God can work in and through you. It's all there for Jesus to work with. And your history is material for him to employ for his kingdom and his will. So the text gives us encouragement to seek a life of integrity, of relationship with God, of practicing um, uh, like reflective thanksgiving for for his faithfulness, and for continuing to learn in whatever your station of life is. I think that that's encouraging for us. But but I also want to say it it presents us with a real danger as well. See, we are always being formed, and if we're not being formed in those four areas that I pointed out with David, then we are being deformed. And it is telling that Goliath was killed with his own sword. That's a biblical motif. Uh, For example, in the Exodus story, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are attacked with 10 plagues that all represent their gods and goddesses. They had frog gods and goddesses and and, and, all all these kind of things. And so God is like turning that on its head. You want to trust in frog god and goddess and all all these, and the Nile River? Let me tell you, I'll turn your river to blood. You want frogs? I'll put them all over your bed. You want gnats? I'll do that. So the demise of people who trust in things other than God is often more of the stuff that they're trusting in. In the book of Esther, Haman planned to exterminate the Jews and humiliate them by hanging Mordecai in this massive gallows in the middle of the square. And what does God do? He turns that around and Haman is actually hanged on that gallows. In each of these examples, a person or people have placed their faith, devoted their lives to finding security and meaning in something outside of the living God. For some, it was false gods. For others, it was pride. For Goliath, it was a mixture of his own strength, his own pride, and his own Philistine gods. And the point is that whatever we invest in, whatever we worship outside of the living God, it will consume us. Our addictions, our misplaced allegiances, our investments, if they are not of God and for God or for his kingdom, they'll destroy us, they'll bring us down. So spiritual formation isn't just some additional thing that the super committed Christians are doing. The warning here is that if we don't have a plan for formation in Christ's likeness, 
then we've already kind of made a passive plan to be deformed like Goliath and so many others. Breathe. So far we've been looking at these principles in the story. I think they're real. I think they're there. I think they hold water. But they're not the final word. Preaching is never final if it only gives you good advice or warnings. It is only biblical Christian preaching if it brings good news. And there's good news. Thankfully, Scripture doesn't just leave us with this good advice. In reality, no one can do all of this perfectly. David would be consumed by his sinful appetites later in life. And that's why it's so important that we have a God who loves us so deeply that he came himself to rescue us. So Jesus is enfleshment, his incarnation, leaves no doubt that God is willing to do anything, even becoming a human being. That Jesus' life leaves no doubt that God's character is truly safe and truly holy and that it leads to a fullness of life. Jesus' death leaves no doubt that God loves us more than his own comfort or dignity or self-preservation. He is undoubtedly for us. Jesus' resurrection leaves no doubt that sin and death are defeated by their own weapons, and so through him we are forgiven and cleaned and rescued. And Jesus' ascension leaves no doubt that he is now on the throne in fulfillment of Daniel 7. He is shepherding history to its good and glorious new beginning, where we all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Julian of Norwich and the Bible. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher, for helping us to see, even in a strange and violent and foreign text like this one, good news and good advice for how to live fully into your kingdom. I pray for grace, Lord. I pray for grace and creativity so that we can honestly see our lives and see where you're leading us, see how you're tying our history, our present, all together so that you can work in and through us in the present and future. I pray you would encourage my sisters and brothers who are feeling like the skills that they've been honing uh, aren't holy enough or good enough, and I, I pray that they would see. They would see your good pleasure, that, that you would show them how you're working in through them. Be with those especially who are feeling like they're stuck in rhythms of the mundane um, and monotony. I pray, Lord, for motivation and encouragement to be people of integrity, to be people who trust you and rely on you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, for your rescue, for the atonement, for resurrection, and for the hope that we have in you. May we leave today encouraged and challenged, not discouraged and defeated. Amen.